<laughs> Did you hear about the hurricane that came through the state of Georgia? It did $10 million worth of improvements. <laughs> All right, let's take our Bibles now and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, we're going to pick up with the narrative in verse 15 of chapter 16. So we're skipping some portions of chapter 16 and moving ahead a little bit. So we're going to read from verse 15 of chapter 16 down to verse 23 of chapter 17. So follow with me. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Now you remember that David had sent Hushai back uh, to be a spy. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in your father's presence? So will I be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in to your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak, and make him afraid, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he says too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field, and your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place, and it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found. And we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he has withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, 
saying, Do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Nehemiah stayed at Enrogal, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Baharim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. Then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, They have gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass, after they had departed, that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. Let's pray together. Our great God, we bow before you, the one and only true and living God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge that you are the one who has created this world. You are the one who has made everything that we see and has made those things we cannot see. You are the God who sustains our lives, who gives us our breath. Everything we have comes from you, and we are utterly and completely dependent upon you for everything now and for eternity. You are the sovereign, all-powerful, all-glorious God, the God who is majestic and beautiful and amazing and awesome in all of your perfections. And we bow humbly before you, and we come tonight to your holy word, acknowledging that what we read is not merely the words of men, but it is the living God speaking to us, and we pray that you would help us to worship you tonight in the manner in which we listen to your word. For we acknowledge, our Father, that there is no greater act of worship that we can render than to hearken to and to listen intently and with reverence and with obedient disposition and with expectation to your holy word. So come among us and help us by your spirit. Help us to drive away the things in our hearts and minds that would distract us, that we might give our full energy and attention and our hearts and our whole beings to you tonight in the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word. And may you do mighty works in our midst, glorifying yourself and glorifying your son and doing good to your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that Christ must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The kingdom and the cause of Christ in this world will ultimately be triumphant over all of the forces of evil and over all its enemies. Now, I really especially enjoy singing hymns that celebrate that reality. There's Wesley's hymn. Maybe you've heard it. Rejoice, the Lord is King. It contains these lines. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus give. Or the lines in one of Isaac Watts' hymns in the Gadsby Hymnal. Thy foes in vain designs engage, against his throne in vain they rage, like rising waves with angry roar that dash and die upon the shore. Well, there's a number of phrases in these hymns that I think could serve as a, as a good title to the message uh, in this session, and I've entitled it, as you look, if you look in your little booklet, 
his foes in vain designs engage. That's really, as I see it, the theme of this chapter. David's throne and kingdom are under attack. Enemies are seeking to take it from him. And sadly, one of those enemies is his own son Absalom. Last time we looked at David and his reaction to these things as he is making his way out of Jerusalem in chapter 15. Then in chapter 16, the spotlight is placed on three of David's enemies. Two he meets along the way. Ziba and Shimei or Shimei will not have time for them. Instead, I want to turn our attention tonight to the third of these enemies, the man named Ahithophel, as we pick up with verse 15 of chapter 16. Ahithophel, you will remember, is the man who was once David's most trusted advisor. But he has betrayed David. He's joined up with Absalom in his rebellion. Ahithophel has been called uh, the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. Now, for some people, that might seem like a harsh judgment. Doesn't a man have a right to work for whomever he wants to work? If Ahithophel prefers to work for Absalom, what's wrong with that? Well, I remind you again that David is not just one of a number of possible employers. Though from one perspective, as a private individual, David is suffering in part for his own failures in the past, however, he's also nonetheless Jehovah's chosen king, appointed by God to rule over his covenant people. He alone has been chosen by God to govern God's visible kingdom in the world at that time. Therefore, to rebel against David as king is to rebel against God and his kingdom. So David's not merely to be viewed as a, in this narrative as an individual, but also in terms of his office, his calling as Yahweh's or Jehovah's covenant king. And we must also remember that in this respect, David is a type and a forerunner of the Lord Jesus. In fact, his kingdom is the foundation out of which will arise the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's that kingdom in seed, old covenant form. Therefore, in David's enemies, we have the enemies of Christ and the enemies of his people. We have an example, a picture for us, of the ongoing conflict between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of our Lord and there are some very important lessons that we can learn from these enemies of the kingdom. If we had time, more meetings, we could consider Ziba, the self-serving manipulator, and Shammai, the cowardly curser. But we turn our attention now to Ahithophel, the conniving betrayer. Now first let me say something about the setting. We've been with David on his journey as he flees from Jerusalem, but now as we come to verse 15 of chapter 16, the scene changes. Maybe you remember the old cowboy movies, all the black and white ones, perhaps, when if you've ever watched some of those, and you're looking at one scene, and then this, this little uh, um, blurb comes up, meanwhile, back at the ranch, and then it switches to a new scene. Well, verse 15 begins... In this way, meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. So the scene changes. The literary camera focuses now on what's going on back at Jerusalem at this time with Absalom, as David has been fleeing out of Jerusalem. And it's at this point, Ahithophel is reintroduced. It says, and Ahithophel was with him. We also have reference to Hushai in verses 16 to 19, David's friend, another one of his advisors, but unlike Hithophel, Ahithophel, Hushai has remained loyal to David. He's mentioned earlier back in chapter 15, we saw this morning when David was fleeing, he, he sent Hushai back to be a spy and also to defeat and to contradict Ahithophel's counsel. So now the stage is set. The literary camera turns to Jerusalem. Ahithophel is reintroduced. Hushai has indeed returned as David commanded him, he's gained Absalom's confidence. And now I want to focus on this narrative under three headings. All of our focus tonight is going to be on this man, Ahithophel. First, I want us to consider the counsel of Ahithophel. Secondly, the thwarting of Ahithophel's counsel. 
And thirdly, the suicide of Ahithophel. Now, this is a long passage. I'm not planning to look at everything in it. I simply want to focus on these three points. So first of all, the counsel of Ahithophel. We enter now, uh, brothers and sisters, into the council chamber of the king's enemies. Verse 20 of chapter 16. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And in verse 23, we find out why Ahithophel is the first person Absalom looks to for advice, as we've already seen. His, his counsel was, was as if the oracle of God in those days. So Ahithophel was a very shrewd man. He had a reputation as such. He already had a reputation in David's government as a man of exceptional wisdom when it comes to the affairs of state. He was a legend in his own time. Now, why Ahithophel joined the rebellion, we don't know for sure. It would, it would take us on a uh, rabbit's trail to look into that. I think there are some hints at this in other parts of, of 2 Samuel. But the scriptures don't directly tell us, but his doing so does reveal that with all of his worldly wisdom, he was not a truly godly man. He has forsaken and betrayed David the Lord's anointed, which he had no more right to do than Judas did with respect to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. So Absalom looks to Ahithophel for advice, and what advice did Ahithophel give him? Well, his advice was twofold. First, he counsels Absalom to take public possession of his father's harem and to have sexual relations with them, verse 21. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the royal palace, and there, in plain public view, Absalom went into his father's concubines. Now, why in the world would Ahithophel counsel Absalom to do that? Well, though that's a very wicked and immoral thing to do, politically, it was a very shrewd thing to do. In the eastern cultures of that time, to take possession of the king's harem was to claim title to the throne, and it was also the grossest insult that could be offered to a king. In symbol, it was like throwing down the gauntlet. It was an effect of public declaration that Absalom is burning his bridges behind him. There's no turning back. He means business, and therefore his followers better mean business. It was a public, flamboyant act of defiance intended to galvanize and embolden his supporters and to make clear that there's no intent, no hope of ever returning to David. This appears to have been Ahithophel's purpose in this first piece of advice. However, there is something more here, just to add to mention. Ahithophel had his purposes, but God has his purposes. If you had been someone who had been reading through 2 Samuel, you would, you would immediately be reminded here of the word of God that was spoken through Nathan the prophet to David after his sin with Bathsheba. We've referred to this a number of times. God repented. God forgave him because of the gross nature of his sin, because by his sin he had given occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. God informed David that he would be chastened for that sin. We've already mentioned some of the elements of that, but here was one of them. The prophet Nathan said this in chapter 12, 11 to 12, Thus says the Lord, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. And here in chapter 16, we have the fulfillment of God's word back in chapter 12. Now think about this. Think about it. On the one hand, we have this advice of Ahithophel, this evil man which is intended to overthrow David's kingdom. But little did Ahithophel know that his advice was in fact accomplishing God's previously stated purpose. God uses the wicked scheme of Ahithophel, his act of treachery, to fulfill his word. We're going to come back to that later. So this is Ahithophel's first piece of advice. Secondly, Ahithophel proposes a four-step plan to finish David off. We pick up now with verse 1 of chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, now let me summarize Ahithophel's plan as set forth in verses 1 to 3. It was a good plan. The narrator even says so when he talks about how David 
uh, rejected Ahithophel's good plan He's, and refers to it as a good plan. And we'll see it as a very good plan. One, here's at four parts. One, Ahithophel himself will select 12,000 of Absalom's men and go after David immediately, even tonight, the text says, verse 1. Two, he will strike while David's people are tired and weak, thus terrifying them and causing them to turn tail and run, verse 2a. Three, Ahithophel will then focus on executing David himself, verse 2b. And four, with David then eliminated, his supporters will have nothing left to fight for, and they'll accept Absalom's kingship. Well, in keeping with Ahithophel's reputation, it was a very shrewd plan. In fact, it's brilliant military strategy. There's the element of surprise, pressing the advantage of David's men being tired and disorganized. There's a narrowly focused objective. Just take out David, and it's all over. And then also it's a plan uh, that avoided even the possibility of Absalom himself being killed because Absalom would simply remain in Jerusalem. So it was a great plan. Absalom and his men were impressed. We read in verse 4, And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So this is Ahithophel's counsel. Again, it's very shrewd counsel. There's little doubt it would have worked if Absalom had followed it. But before he gives the last okay, for some unexplainable reason, at least unexplainable at this point, we get the explanation later, for some reason, Absalom decides to get Hushai's opinion first before he follows through with it. So we've considered the counsel of Ahithophel. Now let's consider, secondly, the thwarting of Ahithophel's counsel, picking up with the verse 5. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he says, too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says, if not speak up? Well, I think it's no exaggeration to say that this verse marks the beginning of Absalom's downfall. He not only asks for Hushai's advice, he actually divulges to him Ahithophel's entire plan. So Hushai knows now exactly what he's up against. Now, I wanted you to put yourself in the story and try to put yourself in Hushai's shoes for a moment. Now the pressure is really on this guy Hushai. Ahithophel's advice, if followed, would mean the end of David. And now somehow, right there on the spot, Hushai's got to come up with some way of convincing Absalom that Ahithophel's counsel, the counsel of this man whose advice is revered as the oracle of God, he's got to convince him that it's not best. And he's got to do it in a way that buys time for David, while at the same time not causing any suspicions about his loyalty to Absalom. It's a difficult task. Can he do it? Well, his, his speech and the way he handles this is really amazing. It's masterful. It's interesting that Ahithophel's counsel, it was very urgent and brief, only about 40 words in the Hebrew. He knows what needs to be done. He knows it needs to be done quickly. On the other hand, Hushai's speech is about three and a half times longer than Ahithophel's. Did you notice that in the reading? And it seems deliberately wordy to buy time, and it's full of all kinds of fancy rhetoric for effect to try to win Absalom over. Let's briefly examine this speech of Hushai. First of all, there's tactfulness. Tactfulness. Verse 7. So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Wait a minute. Not good? Who do you think you are? That's like saying uh, that Bobby Cox knows nothing about baseball. You know who Bobby Cox is? Good. All right. Indeed, if he had stopped there, he might have raised suspicions. But Hushai is careful to add these softening words at this time. The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. In other words, there's, there's a very tactful, implied acknowledgement of Ahithophel's expertise and that most of the time his counsel is good. I'm not disputing that. I'm not disputing this 
but I, I am disputing this present proposal. Even the best men can make a mistake every now and then. Well, it's hard to argue with that. So Hushai is allowed to continue. Notice, secondly, he appeals to David's reputation as a wise and experienced fighter. Verse 8, For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds. And I want you, as I'm reading this and working through this, to just notice the fancy kind of descriptions and rhetoric that Hushai uses. Like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field, and your father is a man of war, and will not camp with the people. Verse 9, surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. In other words, Ahithophel means well with this idea of only killing David, but be real. Remember, David's no dummy. There's no way you could just kill David. You'll not even be able to find him because he's probably hiding somewhere. Thirdly, Hushai appeals to caution and to Absalom's worst fears. Verse 9b, and it will be when some of them are overthrown, that is when some of the soldiers with Ahithophel are killed, that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Ahithophel, and even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. So Hushai paints this gripping, frightening picture of what might happen if Ahithophel goes up against David with this streamlined commando force and David's men draw first blood, it might send Absalom's men into a panic because everyone knows David's reputation as a mighty warrior. Why rush into this now and leave such an important opportunity to chance? So now having debunked Ahithophel's plan, fourthly, Hushai now presents an alternative plan. And here's, here's the... Here is uh, the genius of this. It's a plan that appeals to what was, in fact, Absalom's greatest weakness, his vanity. It's a much more massive and flamboyant plan. Verse 11. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. Do you see the appeal to Absalom's vanity? Forget this idea of a small strike force under the command of Ahithophel. You take the time to muster all of Israel together in the formation of a mighty, gigantic army. And why let Ahithophel lead the attack? You lead the army into battle yourself. And he, he presents a plan in which Absalom will be at the center of everything. He certainly knew the character of the man he was dealing with. He knew that vanity... Is Absalom's besetting sin. Absalom with his beautiful hair, his good looks, the poster boy of Israel. Absalom providing for himself chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him as he jets about the streets of Jerusalem in his fancy wheels. Hushai knew this guy. He knew where to make his appeal. How it must have stroked Absalom's pride as he pictured this whole glorious seen before his eyes how grand it would be the eyes of all Israel will be upon me and my greatness as I personally lead forth the army into battle Hushai also appeals to his vanity by setting forth a plan involving a dramatic crushing display of power ending with the complete destruction not only of David but of all of his loyalists I mean if you're going to defeat David let's do it right and again, he's very graphic in his description. Verse 12, so we will come upon him. It's kind of funny, really, when you read it. He's, so we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, is he, if he has withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. So this is Hushai's counsel. Now really, it's quite a cumbersome plan that buys a whole lot more time for David to prepare his army for battle. It's overly ambitious in what it proposes to do, and it puts Absalom himself in great danger at the head of his army. It's not all that difficult to see that Ahithophel's plan is much, much better. There's no need for all of this stuff. At present, 
David and his followers are extremely vulnerable. They're tired. They're disorganized. Hit them right now. Take David out, and it's all over. That's Ahithophel's advice, and it's much better. But whose counsel did Absalom and his cronies take? Verse 14. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of of Ahithophel. How could they be so blind? I mean, all you have to do is read this and realize this the plan of Hushai is crazy. It's this flamboyant plan. How could they be so how could they be so foolish? Well, I'll tell you this. Hushai's skillful rhetoric and finesse are not the ultimate answer to that question. There is a secret behind the success of Hushai's counsel. There's something going on here behind the scenes. Look at the end of verse 14. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. And there we have the ultimate explanation for this whole story. Though it all occurred so naturally, though it occurred in a manner in perfect harmony with the free agency of men and and human responsibility, nevertheless, God in His sovereignty and providence is in control of all that happened. God had ordained it. This is the way God works. There's no trumpets, no spectacular, miraculous displays of power. Here we see the secret behind-the-scenes activity of God. God has purposed disaster for Absalom. Absalom made the foolish mistake of rejecting the counsel of Ahithophel. Hushai's attempts to persuade him in a different direction were successful. The first nail has been driven into Absalom's coffin. The plot against Jehovah's king will fail. Why? Because God has ordained it. Well, as soon as he could, Hushai passes on the information to David's intelligence network. We have this long nail-biting description of how they eventually got that information back to David. It's interesting, but we're going to skip over that right now and go to verse 23 and notice thirdly, the suicide of Ahithophel. Verse 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city, Then he put his house in order and hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. Now, why did Ahithophel commit suicide? Now, we can't know for sure. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us. Some have argued it was wounded pride. Here is the man who, under David, had been his chief counselor. His advice had been revered by everyone as if it had been the very oracles of God. Well, his pride simply could not handle the humiliation of having Hushai's advice preferred before his own. That's one explanation. Others have argued that Ahithophel realized that by following Hushai's counsel, Absalom had sealed his own doom. And by sealing Absalom's doom, Ahithophel's doom had been sealed as well. I I think he was definitely smart enough to see that Hushai's plan was ridiculous and that it would not work. And I think this is most likely the real explanation of Ahithophel's suicide, though the wounded pride might have had a part in it as well. He realized that his own hopes of retaining the preeminent place of influence in the royal court have disappeared and that Absalom, having lost the only real opportunity he would ever have to destroy David, will himself be destroyed, and Ahithophel will go down with him, executed in humiliation as the traitor that he is. So he decides to kill himself. And it's very interesting how his suicide is described. It was a very calculated, deliberate act. Did you notice that? He saddles his donkey. He goes home to his house. And as Dale Ralph Davis comments, and his, his commentaries on First and Second Samuel are just wonderful. I really recommend them. He says, perhaps his family remembered him coming in, going straight to his desk, shuffling papers, signing documents. He puts everything in order. Yes, in one sense, he's a very prudent man, even to the end. But then after wisely putting his affairs in order, 
he does one of the most foolish things a person could ever do. He commits suicide. He, in effect, throws himself headlong into hell for eternity. Ahithophel was a worldly wise man, but at the same time he was a spiritually foolish man. And so ends the life of Jehovah's enemy and the enemy of his king. Well, having opened up this interesting passage, what are the lessons that are here for us? First of all, we have a powerful reminder that even the evil actions and purposes of wicked men are under God's sovereign control. Here in this narrative, we see evil and we see evil men seeking to overthrow God's will, seeking to overthrow God's king and God's kingdom. And yet, don't we also see in this narrative that all of their evil actions and all of their evil plans were under God's sovereign control? Not that they acted like robots. They acted as free moral agents, freely following the dictates of their own wicked hearts. And yet at the same time, everything they did was overruled by God for the accomplishment of His purposes. And this is the mystery of God's sovereignty and its relationship to human freedom and responsibility. It's a mystery, yet at the same time it's a mystery that the Bible itself confronts us with. Theologians didn't come up with it. They didn't create it. It's set before us in the Bible. And though we may not be able to comprehend how it is that God's sovereignty extends even over the thoughts and the actions of men, and yet at the same time men are fully responsible for their own actions, though we may not be able to fully comprehend that, it's truth that's found and taught all over the Bible. And it's truth, therefore, we must believe. And it's also truth, my dear friends, that is intended to give much comfort to God's people. Think again about Ahithophel's counsel. First, think about the first part of his counsel and how God used it to fulfill his own word, his, his advice regarding David's concubines. We have this wicked, immoral counsel, which is intended to further the overthrow of David's kingdom, but little did Ahithophel know that his advice was, in fact, accomplishing God's previously stated purpose spoken through the, Nathan, uh, the prophet Nathan back in chapter 12. He was actually playing into God's hands. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he's speaking of the betrayal of Judas, and he actually uses the Greek word there, which could also be translated to hand over. Jesus was handed over by Judas. And yet, the same apostle uses the exact same word elsewhere with reference to God handing over Jesus. Romans 8.32 says that God spared not his own son, but delivered him up, literally handed him over for us all. It's the same word. So who handed over Christ? Well, from one perspective, Judas handed over the Son of God, and he was responsible for his actions, and he's in hell this very moment being punished for them. But from another perspective, God handed over his Son. In the mystery of God's providence, the wicked scheme of Judas only served to accomplish God's sovereign purpose for good. And the Bible is full of examples like this. Someone has suggested that perhaps this will prove to be the ultimate humiliation of God's enemies on the day of judgment, including Satan and all of his demons. All the time they were opposing God, they were only accomplishing his purpose. So, in Ahithophel's first advice... And Absalom following it, we see God using evil to accomplish his good purpose. Then with respect to Ahithophel's second advice, we see God restraining and thwarting evil to accomplish his good purpose. We are explicitly told that God was secretly at work in that council chamber. God was acting in that council chamber. Here's the real reason Absalom rejected Ahithophel's counsel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. God had already determined that the cause of David would triumph and Absalom would be destroyed. Now, my dear friends, God's providence is still at work in this world. 
as it was then, so it is now. His work is not usually miraculous. It's not always immediately obvious. It's hidden. It's hidden behind the conversations, the decisions, the activities, the crises of our life. He's never absent. His scepter holds sway behind the scenes as he works all things after the counsel of his will. And what effect should that have upon the people of God? Those of us who are Christians. Well, here's one thing. It should produce in us an unshakable confidence in the ultimate triumph of the cause of Christ. God's going to win. Christ's going to win. The ultimate victory of God's Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if we take seriously what the Bible tells us about the devil, it's very terrifying. He's called the great dragon, that old serpent who deceives the whole world. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. The scripture describes him as a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. If we take seriously what the Bible says about fallen man, that he's blind and dead in trespasses and sin, that he's in rebellion against God, antagonistic to God by nature, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And furthermore, not only if we take seriously what the Bible says about Satan and about fallen man, but if you just take seriously and think seriously about what's happening in the world around us at this time. If you read the headlines, as we hear of wars and rumors of wars, the conflict with terrorism, the war against ISIS, the missile launchings in North Korea, the increasingly complex problems and dangers internationally, as we see the accelerated moral decay of Western culture and society, the increased lawlessness and decadence, if we take seriously all of these grim realities, there are really only two choices. Two choices. Live in perpetual fear and despair or lift up our eyes to the one who is seated on the throne and remind ourselves that his sovereign purposes ultimately cannot fail. Everything may seem black and bleak, but God still rules, and Christ, the God-man, David's greater son, is still on his throne, and the scripture says he must reign until all of his enemies are made his footstool. All that is happening is accomplishing his purposes. And therefore, the ultimate triumph of the gospel is absolutely certain. And that's what should give us hope and zeal and confidence and boldness in our evangelistic and missionary endeavors. God has given to His Son a kingdom, Psalm chapter 2. He has pledged to His Son a people out of every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue, the heathen for His inheritance, the uttermost parts of the world, for his possession, and all the evil in the world, all of the wicked schemes of ungodly men cannot stop it from happening. Thy foes in vain designs engage. Against his throne in vain they rage, like rising waves with angry roar that dash and die upon the shore. But then secondly and finally, in this passage... We have a striking illustration of the insufficiency of human wisdom when it comes to what is most important in life. Ahithophel is the wisest man in Israel, but he was also a fool. He was extremely wise uh, when it came to the affairs of state, a shrewd politician, but he was a fool when he came to the affairs of his soul. He's wise but a fool because he rejected Jehovah's king. He's wise but a fool because he takes his own life and goes to hell. And you know, it's, it's really so powerfully captured in the paradox in verse 23. It says, think about what it says there. It says, he put his house in order and he hanged himself and died. He put his house in order showing that he was a, a, a prudent man, a worldly wise and prudent man. He put all of his affairs in order, but he hanged himself, showing he was a spiritually 
and uh, spiritual and moral fool. And there are many people like that. Perhaps there's someone like that who is here at this conference. Perhaps you're very diligent and wise when it comes to your job. You're very successful in your work. You're highly competent at what you do. Or perhaps as, at least as far as the things of this world are concerned, you're a very wise parent. You provide for your kids. You make sure they have a good education, every worldly advantage to make them a success. Or perhaps you're a gifted athlete. You work hard at learning your game. You're very diligent. You become very skilled. Or perhaps you're a very smart student. You make excellent grades in school. You score high on your tests. And all of that is wonderful and it's important. It's good. It's fine. But my friend, if you're the smartest, most gifted, most diligent, most talented person in the world, if your soul is not right with God, if you're not joined by saving faith to Jesus Christ the King, and you continue in that way and go to hell, you're just as foolish as Ahithophel who put his house in order and then went out and hanged himself. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but loses his own soul? What does it profit if you're a successful businessman but lose your own soul? What does it profit if you're a conscientious parent and lose your own soul? If you're chairman of the local political party, but lose your own soul. If you're praised as a great athlete, and lose your own soul. If you score 1,600 on the SAT, and have an IQ of 150, what does it profit? If you excel in all that you do, but you lose your own soul. Learn from the sad, tragic example of Ahithophel the folly of human wisdom where there is no grace. And the one thing that proved most of all that Ahithophel, with all of his wisdom, was a fool was the fact that he rejected God's king. There was no heart attachment to David, no heart devotion to David, no love for David. He did not want this man to rule over him. My dear friends, there is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There's no salvation apart from the unreserved committal of your life and soul to Jesus Christ as your King and your Savior. How sad and tragic and foolish if you're careful and diligent and prudent when it comes to the things of this world while you neglect the most important thing. The one thing that is most needful and you fail to be prepared for the world to come. May that not be true of anyone who is here this weekend. Ahithophel's end is a solemn reminder of what will be the ultimate end of all those who resist the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to perish with the Ahithophels of this world. God is a God of great mercy. The Bible says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And in his love and mercy, he's provided the way that you can be forgiven and justified and saved from such a dreadful fate. Christ is not only your rightful king, he's also the Savior, full of grace, who died in the place of sinners on the cross and paid the debt of sin for all those who look to him for mercy and in Christ Jesus is full forgiveness acceptance with God the gift of the Holy Spirit the hope of eternal life to come and all of these things are in Christ and God gives Jesus Christ to you in the gospel he gives him to you and all of these blessings of salvation all that are contained in Jesus Christ he gives him to you to be received by the empty hand of faith as a free gift. As a free gift. So leave behind your rebellion or your indifference, whatever it is, to Him. Come to Jesus Christ, confessing your folly. He will have mercy upon you. You think Jesus came to this earth and died upon the cross and suffered all of the indecencies that he suffered 
at the hands of men and then suffered at the hands of Satan and the demons of hell, suffered upon the cross, the wrath of God poured out upon him for the sins of the world. Do you think that Jesus Christ endured all of that in order to save sinners? And that if you as a sinner come to him for that salvation that he died to secure, that he's going to, he's going to reject you? He's not going to receive you? Do you think he did all of that? To save sinners and He won't save you if you come to Him? Perish the thought? Of course not. It's His great delight to receive believing, repenting sinners. In the language of Psalm 2.11, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. But blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you tonight for the timeless realities and principles that we have seen illustrated in the tragic experience of this man, Ahithophel. We thank you for the encouragement that we've received from the scriptures, the reminder that your sovereign purposes for your son and your kingdom they will not ultimately be thwarted. And we thank you also for the reminder of the folly of the wisdom of this world and our great need for that which is most important, a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. We pray that these words would not fall to the ground, that the birds of the air, the cares of this world, the thoughts of other things would not steal them, the, steal them away so that they're forgotten. But, O oh Lord, might you grant that they would fall on good ground and bring forth fruit in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>